10. If you have a Bible, go with me to Judges chapter 8. We'll be at the end of Judges chapter 8 here in just a second. Several years ago, uh, when it was Christmas time, and our, our girls were at a certain age, where the hot item for the season for uh, Christmas was something called uh, Hatchimals, okay? And what Hatchimals were are these eggs that you get, and then when the, the time is right, they hatch, and there's a bird that comes out of the egg, and the, the surprise, the mystery is the color of the bird. And that was like the, like the big ticket item for Christmas. And so my wife, um, who's just an incredible mom, you know, got up early uh, one day and went to the store and stood in line to make sure that she could get our girls these Hatchimals for Christmas. And so she, she went and she braved all the, you know, the crazy, you know, uh, you know, what is that, Black Friday shoppers and all those kind of things and to make sure that those uh, Hatchimals weren't gone by the time that she got there, stood in line, bought the Hatchimals, was like, man, these, the girls are going to love this. This is going to be so awesome. And uh, on Christmas Day, I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience before, but uh, my girls opened the presents and they loved them for like five seconds. And then as soon as that egg hatched and that bird came out, they set it aside and never played with it again, ever. And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever, you know, with your kids or you had that experience, like oftentimes what happens in life is that the things that we think we really want kind of let us down and we don't, we don't really, once we have them, we don't really want them the way that we thought we did. I mean, has there ever been a time in your life where you wished for something really bad and then when you got it, 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 it wasn't as fulfilling as you thought it would be? Like you really wanted it, then you got it, and it wasn't exactly what you thought it would be. This happens often like, man, I, I really want uh, this girl to go out with me, or I really want this guy to go out with me, and then you start going out with that girl, you start going out with that guy, and you date for a little while, and then you realize, man, this is a toxic relationship, and it's, it's man, I'm not the, the person I want to be, and I'm not with the person I want to be with, and this is, this is a disaster, and so you got to get out of it, and then you think, okay, the next person that I'm going to go out with, that's going to be the person I really want to be with, and you kind of go through this cycle again and again, and, and you think, man, I really want to date that guy, I really want to date that girl, and then you, you get the thing that you want, but you realize, you know what, I really don't want it like I thought I did. This can happen with a career, you know, with a job as well. Like there's that, uh, so many people, that dream job, like this is the job I want. This is what I've worked my entire life for. And then you get it and your marriage suffers as a result of the effort you're putting in at the job and your, your children, your family suffers as a result of the effort that you're putting in at your job. And, and you think, man, I, man, this is what I want. I've worked my whole life for this. And then you get it and it's not exactly what you thought it would be. And so we don't always really want the things that we think that we really want. And the same thing is true here we're going to see tonight in the life of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel uh, wanted a king, and then they get a king, and they figure out, you know what, I don't know that we really wanted this the way that we thought we did. And so I want us to see tonight in Judges chapter 8 and Judges chapter 9, we're going to look at in the life of this guy named Abimelech, 
and the nation of Israel that we really need to be careful what we wish for. We need to be careful what we wish for. Judges chapter 8, go to verse 29. If you would, please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God. In preparation for our study, we're not going to read all of chapter 9, but we're going to start in chapter 8, verse 29. We're going to go down through chapter 9, verse 6. And uh, this is what God's Word says. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. That's, that's Gideon. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father at Ophrah of the Abiazrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So we see in this story, we're going to see in the story of the life of this guy, Abimelech, and the nation of Israel, that we need to be careful what we wish for, because the things that you wish for can actually ruin you, can lead to your destruction. And so we see here in this story, in the, the life of Gideon, who is the judge that God raised up to save his people, that cycle that we've seen throughout the book where the people sin and then they are enslaved by a foreign power and they cry out to God and God raises up a rescuer and they follow God as long as that rescuer is alive and then they go back into the pattern again. The pattern is completely broken, completely shattered here uh, in the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. The, the story of Gideon, this judge, doesn't end well. It doesn't end with peace in Israel because uh, Gideon himself fails at the end of his life. We saw last week at the end of chapter 8 that the people of Israel come out to Gideon and they ask him to become king over Israel. They say, we want you to set up a dynasty in Israel, we want you to be king. When you die, we want your son to be king. When he dies, we want your grandson to be king. We want you to set up this dynasty in Israel because God used you to save us. 
And Gideon makes the right reply. Gideon says, no, I'm not going to rule over you. You have God as your king, and you need to submit to God as your ruler. He makes the right reply, but then his actions are not consistent with what he said because he begins to do uh, pagan, sinful, king-like things, okay? We saw last week, he, uh, Deuteronomy 17, when uh, it gives the law about kingship, says, listen, there's coming a day when there's going to be a king over the nation of Israel, but there's some prohibitions that I want to put in place in the law to make sure that the king who is over Israel is not like the kind of king that's over all the other nations around you. And so you're not supposed to, as king, you're not supposed to multiply gold for yourself. Well, the first thing that Gideon does after he refuses the kingship is he multiplies gold for himself. Deuteronomy 17 says the next thing you're not supposed to do is not to multiply wives for yourself. We just read that Gideon has all kinds of wives and he has a girlfriend and so he has 70 sons. And so Gideon does these like pagan king-like things. And the issue here for the nation of Israel we're going to see as we get to the end of the book of Judges is not their desire for a king. It's their desire for a king like the other kings around them. That's, that's the issue. God's going to put in place a king who's going to lead them to follow the Lord, but they want a king like all of the other kings around them, and that's what Gideon does. He multiplies gold. He multiplies wives. He has girlfriends. He, he has all of these, you know, 70 sons. You think about history. Like, this would have been Henry VIII's dream come true to have 70 sons, 70 different guys that he could pick out as heirs for his kingdom. And then his girlfriend in Shechem, okay, and in Shechem is a, is a weird kind of city. Shechem was a, a city that was kind of half Canaanite, half Israelite. And so uh, Gideon's girlfriend in Shechem is a Canaanite woman, and he has this child with her, and he names his son Abimelech. Now, the word Abimelech literally means, my dad is king, Okay. So Melech is the Hebrew word for king. Uh, Ab is the, is the Hebrew word for father. Uh, the I in Abimelech is kind of the, the possessive my. And so it's my dad is king. Uh, literally, the, like pronounced Abimelech, that the, my dad is the king. And so Abimelech, that's what Gideon named his son. And so he, he refuses the kingship, but then he begins to act like a king, and his son, Abimelech, is going to be, like if you have this trivia question, okay, come up, who is the first king in the nation of Israel? Many of you would say, and, and most of us would say, you know, Saul, he's the first king in Israel. Well, Judges chapter 9 tells us, no, Abimelech is the first king in the nation of Israel, and he rules for three years, and he, he really is a wicked and brutal kind of guy, and he, he becomes king. Israel wanted a king. They get a king in Abimelech, and it ends in disaster, okay? Israel wanted a king like the nations around them, and so God allows them to have what they think they want, and it doesn't end well, okay? Now, just to give you, again, the, the context of the story that's happening here, as we, we've seen, the issue for the nation of Israel is that they have turned and have began to, begun to worship 
the Baals, okay, these, these uh, Canaanite false gods that they thought would bring in the harvest and bring in the crops and give them financial security. And so they've turned to the Baals. And so God has come to war against the Baals and to show that they're false gods and he's the one true God. So that's the, the context. And we see that God defeats the Baals uh, and the way that he does that is by uh, Gideon tearing down the altars to the Baals and then going out and defeating the Midianites and all these different things where God shows he's the one true God. But now in this context of this war between the Lord, the true God, and the Baals, the false gods, we kind of have a Baal strikes back episode, okay? And so the way that Baal strikes back at uh, Gideon for all that Gideon had done to defeat Baal and his people is that now this guy, uh, Abimelech, is going to destroy all the sons of Gideon. Okay, and so that's the, the strike back that's happening here. And so the story is we just read, Abimelech goes to his mother's relatives. Again, his mother was a Canaanite. Uh, his dad's an Israelite, and so he's half Canaanite, half Israelite. And so he goes to his mom and to his relatives, and he says, listen, you need to convince the leaders of Shechem to install me as king because I need mean, to be better for me as your blood relative to be king than to have 70 of Gideon's sons ruling over you. And they do convince the leaders of Shechem to set him up. And then the leaders in Shechem take money from Baal's temple, okay? And they take the money from Baal's temple and they give it to uh, Abimelech and he uses that to hire these thugs and they go to his dad's house in Ophrah and they kill 70, all 70 of Gideon's sons, we think, he thinks, all 70 of Gideon's sons on a stone. It's literally, the text is like they're sacrificing them on a stone uh, to Baal. That's what's happening here uh, in this story. And so they're sac they sacrifice Gideon's 70 sons, and it's financed by uh, Baal's temple. And so he's able to, uh, Abimelech's able to consolidate power and not have any rivals to the throne by killing off his brothers, okay? Similar things that we see happen throughout history, even in recent years. You have in uh, North Korea, for example, Kim Jong-un has killed family members so that he can consolidate power and so that he doesn't have any rival to his, his dictatorship, okay? And so that's what we see happening here in this story. And it, it really is kind of showing us that this guy Abimelech even though he's an Israelite, even though he's a descendant of Gideon, is a really bad guy, okay? In fact, there's a, there's a clue. If you read through the book of Judges, you can see back in chapter 1, verse 7, there's this evil, wicked, pagan king that the text tells us had mutilated uh, 70 kings, okay? And so now uh, Abimelech mutilates and kills and sacrifices 70 heirs, potential heirs to the throne of Gideon's sons. And so this is, this is a clue in the text. This is a bad guy, okay? Even though he's an Israelite, even though he's going to be installed as king, he's a usurper. He's not the rightful king. And we see this happen throughout 
the, the nation of Israel. We have uh, usurpers to the throne. You have wicked queens like Athaliah who take control of the throne and try to rule over the nation. You have in the New Testament a wicked king like Herod who's not the rightful you know, king. He's not the son of David, but he's ruling over the nation. And so you have these, these wicked uh, rulers who are put in place, and that's what happens here with Abimelech. He convinces them to install him as king, and so the people of Shechem install a killer and an idolater as king over Israel, and they do it. This is like insult to injury. They do it in Shechem. Now, here's why Shechem is an important city. Shechem is the place, you go look in Joshua 24, where the people of Israel renew their covenant and say, listen, you know that, that whole story at the end of Joshua where Joshua says, hey, listen, choose this day who you're going to serve. And if you're going to serve the Lord, then put away all the false gods and serve him alone. He says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That place where they renewed the covenant and said, hey, we're going to worship God and God only. Now they've installed an idolater and a murderer as king over Israel. As, as Tim Keller points out, this would be like in our day and age, if, if somebody went to Gettysburg and reinstituted slavery at Gettysburg. This is the place where what, like the, you know, the proclamation goes out and, and slaves are freed and now you reverse what's happening and that's what happens here in this story. And so we have this, this wicked, evil king, Abimelech, who is installed as king. And so the people of Israel, they wished for a king, they wanted a king, now they have it and it's not exactly what they want. And so we see two things in this story, just very quickly. We need to be careful what we wish for because what you wish for can ruin you. Be careful what you wish for because what you wish for can ruin you. Now the next thing that happens in this story, and don't have time to read all of it, is we, we read that Jotham, who was the youngest son of Gideon, hid himself away when Abimelech went and killed all of his brothers, and so he is saved and he avoids the slaughter. Now this is, this is important, okay? Again, another way... Uh, another thing for you to kind of keep your, your antenna up about and your eyes on when you're reading the Bible is that any time there's like a mass killing and somebody is hidden away and avoids that mass killing, God's going to use him uh, to bring about his salvation, uh, to bring out salvation, okay? So you think about uh, earlier in the Bible, you have Moses, for example, and what happens when Pharaoh's killing all the, the, the Hebrew males? Then you have Moses who is hidden away, and then Moses is the one that God uses to save his people. The story that you see later in uh, the Old Testament is a story where, again, this wicked queen, Athaliah, comes to the throne. She kills all the descendants. Of, she tries to kill all the descendants of David. One guy, one little boy, Joash, is rescued, is hidden back, and then after seven years, he comes out, and he's the one that God uses to defeat Athaliah and to overturn and to, to reinstitute the Davidic dynasty there in Israel. You think about the New Testament. What happens? Herod killing all the male babies because he doesn't want there to be a king that's a, that's a threat to his throne. Jesus is hidden away, and then Jesus comes out, and he is the Savior. And that's what we see happening with Jotham here. Jotham is used by God as he's hidden away. He then comes out and he tells a parable. One, 
when Abimelech is in, in, has his coronation party, so to speak, and the people are coming out of the, the, the ceremony, getting ready for the party, uh, Jotham sets himself up on Mount Gerizim and then tells a parable. He shouts a parable to tell the people of Israel how God is going to judge them and then how ultimately God is going to save them. And so God uses Jotham to tell of his judgment and to tell of his salvation, okay? And so he goes up on Mount Gerizim to preach uh, after the, the party of the coronation. And here's what he says. He tells a story uh, where he says, listen, the trees, the trees of the forest were trying to find themselves a tree that would be king over them. And so they went to like the olive tree and they went to the vine and they went to all these different trees and they said, you be king over us. And all the other trees rejected and said, we're not gonna be king over you. And so finally the trees went to the thorn bush and said, you be king over us. And the thorn bush said, okay, I'll be king over you and I will rule over you. But if, listen, if you don't submit to me and if you don't support my rule, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring fire out and consume you with fire. And Jotham tells this story, he tells this parable because he, he wants them to understand, listen, you think that you wanted a king. And so you picked the kind of king that you picked. And now it's gonna end in mutual destruction, okay? Because you know what thorn bushes are good for? Spreading fire, like that's it. They're, they're good for brush fire. And so you pick that kind of king, and so it's gonna destroy him, and it's going to destroy you. This is the story that Jotham tells them from the mountain, and then he runs away and hides, okay? So that Abimelech will not kill him. But this is the, the, the point of the story. Again, parables are, are meant, not, we, we looked at this, I guess it was a year ago now, we looked at the parables, but so, pe so many people have, you know, misunderstanding about what parables are. They think, you know, it's, a, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that, you know, that's not what the parables are. The parables are meant to, to blow the circuits, to, to, to reorient the way that you think. And so he's using this story, using this parable to reorient the way that the people of Israel think and to say, listen, you wanted this. God let you have it. And now you're going to see the results of it. You're going to see the way that it plays out. And then after he tells this story, that's the way that things play out. And oftentimes in the Bible, we see that the judgment of God is not an active thing where he's doing something to you, but oftentimes the judgment of God in the Bible is a passive thing where God basically says, okay, have it your way. And let's see the way that things play out. That's often the way that things work in the Bible. Romans 1 says it this way, that God hands you over to the things that you think you want. And he says, okay, let's, let's see how this plays out in your life. And often judgment is God letting you have your way. Again, all kinds of stories I could tell you where people I know who there was something they really, really wanted and then they got it, and it destroyed their life, destroyed their marriage, destroyed their family, destroyed their reputation. Now, I've, I've had friends who, uh, you know, parents really, really wanted 
money and success and have a career where they were seen as some, somebody important and they got those things and they sacrificed their family for it. And I've, I've seen uh, wives and moms who pass out drunk every night because they're so miserable about the way that their husband is relating to them and children who, who just fly off the handle and go into all kinds of destructive behavior because they have a dad that doesn't spend any time with them, doesn't show up at their games, doesn't show up at their plays. And, and so they, they, they got that thing that they really wanted and it destroyed their family. I've seen people who like, man, I, what I really want is athletic achievement. And I've seen people close to me who've gotten that athletic achievement and it's ruined their relationship with Jesus and it's ruined their walk with Christ and it's ruined their integrity. They got what they wanted, but then it, it made things. I've seen it with pastors. Pastors who, man, I've got to have a successful church or, man, I've, I've got to be somebody who is known by other pastors and, and is looked to and is respected and they, they get those things. They attain that, those things that all these pastors want. I mean, the person who speaks at the conferences and writes the books and all those things and the entire ministry comes collapsing down. They get what they really wanted, but in the end, it ruins them. And this happens over and over and over again. This is what happens with the nation of Israel. Abimelech, the text tells us, rules over Israel for three years, and then things go bad. Listen to what the Bible says there in chapter 9, verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. Now, so what's, what's happening here? God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, like what in the world is going on? Let me just say a couple things, an explanation, okay? Number one, every creature in the universe, good or bad, is under the sovereign rule of God, okay? Like you need to be convinced of that. Like the reason why, I, when I go to bed at night, I sleep like a baby. You know why? Because I'm absolutely convinced that God is in control of the universe. I don't think that whoever's in Washington is in control or whoever's in North Korea is in control or Iran or wherever, China. I'm convinced God is sovereign overall. And so every creature, both physical, material, and non-material, whether it be a physical being or a spiritual being, every single creature in the world, in the universe, is under the sovereign rule of God. And God can direct those creatures under his rule to do what he wants them to do. And so God here superintends and uses an evil spirit, you know, a demon, to do what he wants to do and to bring about judgment on 
the people of Shechem and Abimelech for what they've done. Okay? In the same way, you say, man, I've got a problem with that. Well, this happens throughout the Bible that God, we've seen throughout the book of Judges. What does God do? God uses wicked, evil nations like the Midianites and the Canaanites and the Philistines to bring about judgment on his people because they've rejected him. And so God has the right to do with his creatures what he wants to do. And so he oftentimes will use evil, wicked beings and creatures to bring about his accountability and his judgment. If you have a problem with that, then your problem is with Jesus. You know, that's, that's your problem. It's not like, oh man, I just, I don't, you know, the Bible is out of date and all the, no, your problem is with Jesus and with judgment and with accountability. And God as creator has the right to do with his creatures as he sees fit. And so he sends this evil spirit that brings about this conflict between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. So this war breaks out between Abimelech and Shechem as we just read that the people of Shechem set up ambushers basically on the highways to rob travelers as they, as they come in and out. And this is, would be, again, any king, and as we see this in our own day, any king who cannot... Uh, or any ruler or president or governor or mayor, whoever, you know, can't uh, give his people confidence that there's going to be law and order and that there's going to be a you know, civilized way that things work and there's not going to be anarchy and chaos, this would be a, a black eye for that ruler if you have, you know, travelers who can't go from one point to the other without being accosted. And so that's what's happening here. And so Abimelech is, is told about what's happening and how they, they're turning on him. And the next thing that happens in the story is there's this guy named Gaul, the son of Eben, okay? And literally his name means vile slave son. That's what his name means, okay? Gaul, the, the son of Eben, vile slave son. And he comes into the city and they begin to, to kind of try to install him as the ruler and him as the leader. And here's what happens, okay? I'll just tell you the story real quick. They throw a party. And uh, Gaul, the son of Ebed, let's just say, you know, has a little bit too much to drink. And so he's kind of fortified with liquid courage. And so he starts running his mouth. And he's like, I'm going to show Abimelech who's boss. And I'm going to defeat Abimelech. And so he's, he's running his mouth, <laughs> you know, fortified by this liquid courage. So he offers to lead this re revolt. Well, there's a guy there at the party uh, whose name is Zebel, and he's kind of a spy. Like, he's, he's Abimelech's guy, all right? And so he's at the party as a, as a spy. Like, like, I really wish that Netflix would pick up the book of Judges and, like, make a series out of it, okay? Because there's just so many good things happening in the book. But Zebel's kind of a spy, and so he sends word to Abimelech, and he's like, hey, there's this guy who's running his mouth and he thinks he's going to lead this revolt and he's going to defeat you. And guess what? He's had a little bit too much to drink tonight. And so maybe muster your forces and come up here overnight and be ready in the morning to defeat him and to destroy him uh, because he's going to be hung over and he's not going to be able to be alert. And so, uh, you know, you need, to, you need to get ready for battle. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, Abimelech readies his troops at night. 
He comes in the morning to capitalize while Gaul is hung over. And what happens in the, the text, this is, this is awesome, is that, let me, let me show you. Go, go down to chapter uh, 9, verse 36. Listen to what happens then. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebel said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaul spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebel said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. So basically what happens is, wakes up in the morning, Gaul wakes up in the morning, he's kind of hung over, and he's looking and he's like, hey, that looks like troops are coming. And Zebel, again, Abimelech's spy is like, hey, you need to have your eyes checked. Just shadows. And then Gaul's like, no, 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 I mean, I, those are really men. They're coming. And then Zebel says, okay, you know, now, big boy, where's your mouth? Time to put up or shut up. And Abimelech comes in, and he destroys uh, the, the people that have come against him. And Abimelech wipes them out. And then, and then the next day, when people wake up, they think it's over, okay? Abimelech won. It's over. So they go out to farm. And Abimelech comes and he kills the farmers and then he, he salts the ground to make sure that no crops will grow and then he burns up the city and kills the people in Shechem, okay? And so again, this, the, the prophecy, the parable that Jotham told about mutual destruction, it happens and he goes in and he destroys the city. Just like he said, listen, you, you chose a thorn bush that's only good for brush fire, and so he burns down the city and everyone dies. This is, again, oftentimes what judgment is, is God saying, listen, what you want, I will give you. I've said it to you before. C.S. Lewis says, heaven is the place where people say to God, thy will be done. And hell is the place where God says to people, thy will be done. And so be careful what you wish for because it can ruin you. Second, last thing is be careful what you wish for, but it can point out your need for salvation. It can point out your need for salvation. Listen to what the Bible says. Go down to chapter 9, verse 50. Let's see the end of the story of Abimelech. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. There was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. So we see here in this story, not just that 
what you want can ruin you, but also God can use these things to bring about his salvation. What happens here is Abimelech comes against the, the city of Thebes and the tower there, and this woman takes a millstone, throws it over the side, and it crushes the head of Abimelech. And this is, a, again, this is, we just read, God's justice, okay? It's kind of an eye for an eye. Abimelech took his 70 brothers and killed them on a stone, and now a stone is used to crush his head and to bring about judgment on him. And we've talked about this over and over again in the book of Judges, but just remind you, Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sin, and death enters into human existence, and there's this curse of sin to where now things don't work the way that they're supposed to work, and, and now we suffer things that God never meant for us to suffer. And when that curse came into the world, God said, listen, it's not going to always be like this. There's coming a day when the offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And then God gives us glimpse after glimpse after glimpse after glimpse throughout the Bible of him crushing the head of his enemies and rescuing his people. And that's exactly what we see here. The story points us to Jesus and to what Jesus has come to do for us. He, God used a woman to crush the head of the enemy of Israel and to bring about mercy and salvation for Israel. And that's what God is going to do for us. And this story is really instructive because Abimelech is an Israelite. He, he is part of the, the people of God, but he's not really part of the people of God because he's not put his faith and his trust in the one true God. And here's the lesson we see throughout the Bible. Like your DNA does not determine your relationship with Jesus. What determines your relationship with Jesus is you putting conscious faith for yourself in the one true God. And so I don't care who your mama is or your daddy or your granddaddy was a pastor or any of those things. Like, it doesn't matter what your DNA is, how and where do you stand with God? Abimelech was a descendant of Israel, but he was not really part of the people of God. He was an enemy. He was a satanic enemy that was torturing and, and, and terrorizing Israel. And God crushed his head to bring relief and to bring salvation to his people. And this points us to Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. Like the people of Israel, we are sinners who want what we really shouldn't want. But God in his mercy takes the initiative to save us from ourselves and to rescue us out of the mess and the brokenness that we have created for ourselves. I've seen this throughout my life. One of, one of the stories, just tell you this as we close, my, uh, my dad's story, my dad came to Christ um, at an early age, but he didn't walk with Jesus and he wasn't discipled. And so he, when he came to Christ at about seven or eight, uh, when he got into high school, he was way more concerned about girls and sports than he was about Jesus. And so he, he didn't walk with Jesus uh, for his teenage years. In fact, one time when he was at lunch in high school and the, the topic of Christianity came up and he said, well, I'm a Christian. And his friends looked at him and said, Danny, you're no more of a, uh, used a cuss word, 
Christian than I am. And so that was my, that was my dad's uh, testimony in high school. And so he, what he wanted with all of his heart was to be a baseball player. And he, he went to a junior college to play baseball. In fact, the manager of the, the baseball team that he, he played for is a guy um, named Jim Morris who became the manager for the Miami Hurricanes, won a bunch of College World Series, and uh, my dad was playing. And he got, in spring practice, he got injured in a way that he, so he couldn't play in the season. And so God took baseball away from him. And then during that period of time when he was recovering from his injury, that's when God got a hold of his life and he rededicated his life to the Lord and, and started actually going to church, reading his Bible, praying, like having a real personal relationship with Jesus. And so in the, the summer after that season, he committed to going on a mission trip to Arizona, funnily enough, our team getting ready to go to Arizona. And so he committed to this mission trip to Arizona, and then, and then Jim Morris came to him and said, hey, listen, we're, we're taking the team to um, a country in South America, and we're going to play uh, a bunch of games. We're going to play three or four games every day. We're going to be gone for three weeks. I really want you to come and, and to rejoin the team. And my dad said, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to be able to make it because I'm going on a mission trip to Arizona. And then Jim Morris said, why in the heck would you want to do that? And it was on that trip to Arizona that God called my dad into ministry. And so, listen, what I'm, what I'm telling you is this. I'm not saying sports are bad. I'm not saying a girlfriend or boyfriend are bad. I'm not saying that having a good career is bad. I'm not saying the money is bad. I'm not saying any of those things. But when you put those things first in your life, everything else is going to get out of whack. But Jesus says, you seek God and his kingdom first, and all these other things will be added to you. Put Jesus first, he'll work out everything else. You put something else first, God may just give you what you want. And you may end up thinking, you know what? I don't really want it like I thought I did. We ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna stand and sing and just have a, a, a few moments of response. And so here's what I, wanna, what I wanna challenge you with this evening as we close is listen, you need to put Jesus first in your life. And so if you're here tonight and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus and you've never put him on the throne of your heart, of your life, you've never made him king over your life, there's gonna be pastors here at the front. We'd love to talk to you about how you can give your life to Jesus tonight before you leave. And let me just tell you, just like with my dad, like it, it, it will transform you, it will make your life different give you a brand new start. You say, John, I mean, I've made a mess of my life. I've chased after those things I desire and none of them have satisfied and none of them have fulfilled me. Listen, Jesus, Jesus is the only satisfaction that you'll ever get. The only eternal satisfaction you'll ever get.
Everybody, everything else will let you down. Jesus will never let you down. And so if you need to give your life to Jesus tonight, please give us an opportunity. When we stand here, we sing in just a moment. Give us an opportunity to share with you how you can give your life to Jesus and get a brand new start tonight. You're here and you're a believer in Christ, but you've never made that public in baptism. We'd love to talk to you about baptism. Maybe this is just a time for you to reflect on, Lord, there's these things I put over you in my life that I've chased after. I thought, man, this is what's really gonna make me happy, and it's, it's not. It's, it's not giving me what I thought it would give me. And this is a time for you just to cry out to the Lord in repentance and say, Jesus, forgive me and help me to put you first in my life and, and, and let those other things, those things that are good things, let those things settle out in the priority and the place that they're meant to settle out in. So whatever it is that the Lord's laying on your heart, this is a time to respond to what God's doing in your life. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us to see your goodness and your mercy in Jesus Christ and to see Jesus as supreme. That Lord, by the power of your spirit above everything else, that we would desire Christ and that he would be first in our life and first in our church. So Father, help us to have the right priorities. Help us to have the right affection, the right desires. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and then trust you to add everything else that needs to be added. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand? Let's sing together. If you have a decision to make, you come right now while we sing.